Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the bats to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson, and today we are recording the first of several episodes from the International Law Enforcement Educators and Trainers Association Conference in St. Louis, Missouri, and it's only the second time I've been in the same room as our host, Mr. Michael Warren. You're an old pro at these conferences. I lead a 2023, my first ever conference. Well, you know, if you're going to be, this is going to be your first one. This is the one you want to come to. Uh, It's a great conference. Yesterday, it was like a family reunion running into all these people that you know. And when I say family reunion, I'm talking about the the side of the family that likes law enforcement, (laughs) not the one that has to deal with law enforcement. Well, and it's uh, kind of like a family reunion for the podcast because you're running into lots of former guests, right? Absolutely. Last night, got to spend the the evening at a fundraiser with Kim Schlau. Right. Uh, But we've run into Brian Hill and Brian Willis and and Joe Willis and uh, Kevin Davis. And it, it, it really is a place for law enforcement trainers to come and re-energize. Yeah, and it's a good place for us to kind of interact. And we really, this is the first time we've been amongst, or at least me, amongst the masses to get out and just shake hands and see everybody. You hear names, and then you start meeting those people, and you start putting the the face to the name, and uh, it's just a great experience. And it's really kind of cool for us today that we get to sit down in person because usually we do these online and we're all like, you're in Michigan, I'm in Tennessee. And today we're all in the same room. So it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. It's weird seeing this many faces in one room while this is going on. But you know what? We have doing something a little bit different, not completely different because we've done it before. But we have two guests on today. Right. Yeah. So, so why don't you go ahead and introduce them? Because I have a lot of fun with these guys. I think it's going to be fun today. It's not the first time we've had a married couple on the podcast. Uh, We had Brian and Angelie uh, Thompson back in one of our earlier episodes, but uh, this is the first time we've had a husband and wife who both have a background in law enforcement. So uh, it's going to be a fun one today, and we'll uh, talk about our guest uh, a little bit more in detail. Now, before retiring in December 2020, he achieved the rank of lieutenant from the Lansing, Michigan Police Department, and she currently serves as sergeant with the Lansing Police Department. There's got to be some stories there. We'll, we'll dig into that. Uh, Lieutenant Paul Biesinger is a 25-year veteran of the city of Lansing Police Department. During his career, he served as a tactical team member DEA task force officer, and he spent 20 years as a trainer in firearms and defensive tactics. Sergeant Mandy Biesinger is a 20-year active duty supervisor for the City of Lansing Police Department. During her career, she served as a crisis negotiator, undercover narcotics officer, dive rescue team member, and a field training officer and supervisor. It is our pleasure to welcome two Between the Lines, Paul and Mandy Biesinger. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Thank you for having us. Yeah, our pleasure. I want to go ahead and let the listeners know that when we were setting this thing up, uh, I was referring, I referred to the the good Beesinger and the other one. And, and the, the thing that, that kind of struck me funny. So it's literal good cop, bad cop? It, 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 absolutely <laughs> it is. But And you know what? They knew exactly who I was talking about. Nobody has to identify hey, who's a good one because everybody knows Mandy's the good one and Paul, he's the other one. But hey, this is true. It, it's fantastic. So so uh, I'm going to start with Paul. Uh, 
Paul, you and I met, I can't remember how long ago, but why don't you tell the listeners how we met uh, so we can get that little disclaimer out of the way. Right. So uh, at the time I was running the training division for the city of Lansing Police Department uh, up in Michigan, and we hosted some training and, you know, lo and behold, Mike, Mike Warren was the trainer for the course that we were hosting. So um, that was my job to facilitate, you know, the instructor and all that kind of stuff as far as what the event was. And Mike and I just, we, we hit it off. We had the same background as far as what we did in law enforcement. Uh, you know, working in narcotics and working in SWAT and, and, and as a trainer and things of that nature. Um, we had a passion for classic 80s head banger type music. So like we, Jackpot. Mike and I hit it off right from the get go. And Mike had the opportunity to come back to Lansing a couple different times. We kept, you know, we kept in touch and things like that. And that's initially, that's how we met. And, and you know what? We, we do share that passion, but, but then I met Mandy and it turns out that we also have that, that those same likes and dislikes. And, and Paul, no disrespect to you. Well, I guess it kind of is. She's a lot more fun to talk to. Yes, I am. So, yes. Exactly. <laughs> so so I, I remember one time when I came and you guys had just come back from a trip. So, but you guys are always on trips. But, but you just come back. We started talking music and I'm like, this is why I, I do the training gig is to meet people like this right here. Paul, you, you, you did 25 years. Right. Okay. Uh, how much did policing change from the time you started? until the time you retired. Eh? Was it a little bit or was it a lot? Uh, it was dramatic. I mean, when we started off, it was, you know, there was no computers in cars or definitely wasn't any, no body worn cameras or anything like that. Um, when I started off, you wrote on, uh, hand wrote all your reports out and, you know, flash forward 25 years where everything's on video 24 seven, you're either dictating your reports or, you know, using the computers in your cars and all the technology uh, that goes along with it. Um, it just, it changed dramatically. I always laugh when I tell people that when I, when I left college, I swore I'd never do another Scantron. And, and then I became a police officer in Michigan. And how did we used to do our accident reports? Yep. That's yes. exactly what it is. It was like yeah. a big two-sided, and if you didn't get it right, you know, you get it back from records. But anyway, Mandy, you're still active. Yes. And I would be willing to bet that policing has changed even in the time the short time since Paul retired. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these last two years have changed our profession dramatically. And um, we've seen, um, you know, kind of where it's catered to me. When I first began, um, I was told I was too timid and they weren't sure if uh, I was going to make it. And, um, you know, fast forward now, 20 years into it, and especially after these two years, you know, de-escalation, verbal de-escalation is uh, something that departments want to train to. And, you know, CIT, mental illness, all this kind of stuff you, you really look into. Uh, different ways of doing law enforcement. St stuff that used to be almost frowned upon yes. when you first started. Now, I, I Brent, I, I heard a fantastic story last night about uh, how Mandy almost didn't make it out of FTO. And, and so uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, you go into this house where, where there had been some type of altercation. So why don't you tell us about that story right there? Yes. So we, they, we, we were dispatched to a call. I was the first one in. It was an active argument uh, between people inside. And I go in there and there was like, to me, it looked like a 50 foot boa constrictor. I'm sure it was probably only like eight feet, but it, it was huge. And it, in, their, in their fight, in their argument, they had knocked the large rock that was holding the top to the tank on the snake's tank and it was coming out. And I, all I saw was I was going to die and 
I actually stopped in the doorway, which you're not supposed to do. And all the officers kind of plowed into me and my FTO was like, you need to get in there. I'm like, no, I'm going to be eaten by this snake. <laughs> he like just did not care. Uh, and yeah, I had to swallow my, you know, get up some courage there and get in there. So well, you did a lot better than I would. Cause I can tell you that I probably would have turned around and handed him my gear and walked on out. Cause I'm not going in where a snake's coming out. It's interesting to me. Those are the type things that young officers often struggle with. It's, it's not the stuff that you think they're going to struggle with. You have kind of taken an interest. You've kind of taken the lead at your agency on developing, not just in the FTO program, but throughout their career, the officers that you have in your agency. And you, you, I think it's called mentoring is what you talk about. Why is mentoring so important, not just in your agency, but in every agency? Well, I, th- I think that, you know, this profession is uh, hard. It, it's stressful not only on the person, it's stressful on their personal lives, it's stressful on their loved one's personal lives. Um, and what we're seeing now is that many people are not looking at this profession as a career. And they're looking at it more as, you know, almost a box to check, something to do for a couple years and then move on to something else. And I think when you have a mentor program in your agency, you really start to um, not only professionally develop that individual, those new hires, but you get those existing officers that you already have that are going to serve as the mentors to, you know, kind of take more stake in their department and more interest in their department. And they too um, can kind of see how this is going to benefit them in the long run and want to stay and make those differences in their communities um, and not just do it for a couple of years. Well, being non-law enforcement, I have a question. So what's the difference between uh, a mentorship and say an FTO? Is that, are they one and the same or is that different? It, it are, I say they're different. Okay. Um, they work alongside each other. So obviously the field trainer is going to be the one that is training the, the new hire. They're going to be showing, you know, different policies, how we do things, how we handle calls. Where a mentor is got more of that personal relationship. If uh, the uh, new hire is struggling, they can help out with that. If the new hire maybe wants to know how to add a child onto their insurance, they can help that out. That's not where like an FTO is. It's a more personal relationship. So I would even say uh, um, the mentor helps with the culture of the department. Absolutely. Where the FTO is is more, um, is more performance based and and, and things like that. Well, but, but Paul, Paul, you ran training for a while, right? Correct. And and so I want to ask you as the, the, the training person for your agency, how, how challenging was it that you would go and invest a whole bunch of time and a whole bunch of money uh, in a new officer? And because they don't have those personal relationships, they haven't been invested in the department. And now they leave and they take that training and experience elsewhere. How hard did that make your job? That's very frustrating because if you think about it, you know, the purpose of a training division or an FTO program is to have a, you know, a successful officer that's part of your agency. And by the time you put someone through the academy and invest in them, you know, you're talking, you're well into six figures by the time you get them up and running and things like that. So it's a lot of time, money and resources um, and to have them pick up and leave because they don't understand the culture of their agency or they're not comfortable navigating some of the stuff that happens, you know, outside of law enforcement, but how it affects their personal life. That, that's a huge thing. And to be able to, to lose someone because of that, that that's irresponsible. So we, that's what we found the mentor program and the FTO program. Like Mandy said, they work hand in hand. They, they almost have to. And Mandy and I, you and I, we've talked before that, that we kind of see the mentoring program as part of uh, the retention program. Absolutely. Uh, because that that's what, uh, I hate to keep using the terminology, but that's where you really get investment from an individual officer 
in an agency. And now uh, I don't work there. I'm part of there. Yes, absolutely. And that's where I think that that's where it works hand in hand. And uh, what I, I'm going to talk about later this week is that I think mentor programs sometimes only focus on the new hire and it needs to focus on the mentor themselves because both of them have to invest themselves in the program. And when they do that, that's when the department will benefit long term. And I'm glad you brought that up uh, because you are going to be presenting later on this week uh, here at the conference. But in many agencies, that type of investment that you're talking about typically only lasts a year. And the reason why I say it's a year is because that's the typical probationary period. And once they clear probation, it's like a mama bird out of the nest with the baby birds you go. And we wonder why we lose people. And we wonder why they're not prepared, not necessarily for the things that happen on the job, but those things that happen off the job that affect the job. And that's where you really want to go. Mentoring should go throughout the entire career. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Absolutely. If you were to give a tip to an agency that's out there listening right now, what is the most important part of a mentoring program? Investing in your mentors. The development of your mentors. I mean, that's going to be your long term. If you teach them how to teach other people your agency's culture, how to teach um, or give those resources back to to these new hires, if you get them invested for the long term, it's just going to keep replicating itself throughout the generations. Well, would it be accurate to say then that an agency's choice of a mentor is a really important choice? Yes. You, you kind of want a cheerleader of the organization, right? Not necessarily uh, a um, malcontent. Is that, would that be right, though? You don't want a malcontent? No. Yes. Uh, all right. So, Paul, uh, it's interesting to me that she brought up that the most important thing that you can do is to invest in your mentor. And as the training guy, I'm going to refer to you a lot as the training sure, guy sure. a lot. Some of the most undertrained people in many police agencies are the trainers themselves. Absolutely. How does that happen? Well, we, we, we have that term that we use, Mike, and it's, you know, it's that curse of knowledge. And once you get to a certain level, you don't think you can learn anymore um, or you're so busy. And I, and I was guilty of it. And I have a perfect example at our agency. We, we were very fortunate at our agency once we replicated and got our training unit up and running the way we wanted it, that every single person in our agency got to go to training at least twice a month, right, for short chunking block type training, right? So we know that there was a hands-on skill set, there was a firearm skill set, so we knew that they were we were hitting them, okay? Constantly small doses of training because we know through science and research that that's the best thing for for that retention. Um, when you get so invested in that, so when, when my job is to coordinate training for 200 and some people every single, you know, every single day for you know, years on end, sometimes, you know, my own training needs, they start to slip. And all of a sudden I get a call from one of my guys that's running my firearms program at the range. And he said, Hey, Lieutenant, you, you haven't been to the range in three months. And I'm like, no, I can't be right. You know, <laughs> I go to the range every month. Just say, no, you haven't been here. in three months. So I have to make that a priority. So some of it's, you know, you get so invested in making sure that everybody else gets their training, right? That, that you kind of put yourself in the back seat and you forget about yourself. Uh, and then the other thing is that curse of knowledge. Once you get up there to a certain, you're like, well, there's nothing else. And that's the most dangerous thing. Once you get to a level, you know, when you're going to instructor, de- instructor development courses or instructor for certification courses, and you're at a level, and it doesn't matter what the topic is, you get to a certain level, you're like there, maybe there's nothing else for me to learn here. That's the dangerous spot. And that's a really slippery slope. And sometimes we perpetuate it because we don't send them to training. Hey, they're not sending me to training because, hey, I already know that stuff. Sure. And sure. Th- uh, this morning, 
morning uh, that was the opening ceremonies for the ILEDA conference, and Brian Willis got up there, and Brent, this made a big impact on me. And and he goes, listen, trainers need to be sponges especially this week right here trainers the true professionals are the ones that are out there uh, they're active they're going out there and they're trying to learn and they said the truth of the matter is we probably could re- rename ILEDA the International Law Enforcement Student Association because the professional trainers are always students and I, I think that's one of the things I like so much about the conference. Well, I think that applies not only to uh, trainers, but just uh, humans in general. We should always be sponges, always wanting to push ourselves to learn and, and gather new information, you know? Uh, but, you know, we, we, we buy into these myths, uh, you know, things like you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And it's like that that's so patently wrong. And in fact, if you want to guard against things like dementia and Alzheimer's and, and cognitive decline and all that, learning is one of the best ways that you can do that. Got to keep that sharp. I mean, that's what we were both in classes this morning at, you know, 10 o'clock this morning, taking classes just ourselves because, you know, we're, we're taking advantage. Not only are we, you know, facilitating some courses throughout the week here at Alita, but we're also taking in as much stuff as we can too. And uh, in one of our earlier episodes, we talked to Brian Hill, uh, who, who was named the, the trainer of the year. Right. Uh, but he talks about when you come to Alita, you know, you go and you take a class from the, the, this, this giant in law enforcement training, and then you go to give your class and guess who's sitting there? And it's, oh my goodness. But it, it, it's such a good environment here. And, and I wish that more agencies, training programs were like that, where the, the continued learning, what was rewarded and it was encouraged and it was expected. Right. Well, you talked about like as an instructor, how often your own training like falls off the radar. What's the first, we all know what's the first thing to get cut from a department budget when, you know, we start talking about resources and money and training is always the first thing and that should be the last thing. Anyway, I want to kind of shift gears here for a second. Um, Just to clarify for our listeners, you guys are married. And 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 uh, you both work in the same agency. At least you did for a time, correct? Yes. Because you're retired now. Because you're older than she is. Okay, but much older. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you because just about everything in life has both a positive and a negative. Uh, there had to be some positives with you working the same agency. There there had to be some things that that it made better. Uh, in my experience, one of the things was I didn't have to explain terminology and, and type things. Uh, what were some of the things that you found as a couple that were beneficial working in the same place? <laughs> For our listeners, Paul just looked over and deferred to Mandy because he doesn't want to answer that question. Just transparency on my part. I actually, I, again, not law enforcement, my wife and I worked in television together at the same time and pros and cons when we had bad days, we could go to each other. But if we were fighting at home, oh, we avoided each other. Because she was on one side of the building, I was on the other. I was like, I'm not going over the newsrooms. I don't want to see. And my wife's name is Mandy, too. So it's a little confusing here. But yeah, it, so there were pros and cons of working with your spouse. No, like, but, the, you know. like you said, the, the big thing, especially if you're in the same agency, you're doing the same profession, the, like the terminology, we don't have to explain that to each other. We uh, we understand, you know, the the if you have to, the shift work mentality, right? We understand that uh, just because you're scheduled to get off at, you know, uh, four o'clock in the afternoon doesn't mean you're going to, and like we, so we understand that aspect 
aspect of it. Um, you know, she, she's been a crisis negotiator for the better part of 10 years, now. 10 years now. I was on the SWAT team for 10 years. So we understand that sometimes you, you live and die. And I'll use an old term for some of your listeners out there by the pager, um, <laughs> that sometimes when that pager went off and, and like, and we both, we, we, you know, so we understand that we have both missed, you know, uh, kids' birthdays and Christmases and holidays and all that kind of stuff. So, we, so that part of it is nice because, you, you know, you understand that going into that where I think if you had someone that was not in the profession, they might not understand, you know, and it's not that you're putting the, the job above the family or the job, but, but that's, it's a, that's why it's a profession. It's a calling. And, and but, but, but Mandy, let me ask you this. Okay. Uh, what he just described. Okay. It, it almost sounds like it, it could be a negative and I could say the exact same things because when, when he comes home, you're wanting to, 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 to detach from work for a little bit, but if he's had a bad day, you got to listen to him and that can be trying, can it? Well, yes. And I, I'm going to start back before we were ever dating. We work neighboring districts. And so I think one of our positives was that we really developed a pretty decent teamwork together. And so I don't necessarily know if that, you know, yeah, same agency that works. But um, so when, you know, all of a sudden we were in a relationship many years later, it came to, yeah, maybe he's having a bad day, but chances are I probably did too, because we were on the same calls. We were handling things, you know, we worked the same side of the city. Um, so that's where I kind of saw us is, you know, we really built a really good foundation at work um, that happened to translate pretty well into the personal life as well. I, I would say that in that, in this particular situation, that that probably was the better order. Yes. Uh, that, that, yes. That it's much easier than to come in with, with that personal relationship. And then now all of a sudden, oh, hey, guess where I got hired? <laughs> Same place <laughs> you work. And, and I would think that that would pose some issues. I think that would be difficult. Yes, I, I agree that that's kind of like invading in someone's territory yeah. a little bit there. <laughs> that's my time away from you. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> what do you mean you applied at my place yeah. of work? Uh, but you both know, you both know the dangers that are associated with the job. Okay, so with with people that don't work in in this profession, uh, you might can hide that from from your spouse or your significant other, whoever Uh, you can downplay uh, the dangerous thing. But, Paul, if you went and did a high risk search warrant, uh, guess who knows what's involved in high risk search warrants? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So so you can't shield them. You can't provide that layer of protection Uh, when you go on a hot run and he hears it go out over the radio. He knows what's involved in that. And so are there negatives to having that much information about the person that you are involved with? Yes. I, I, when we first started dating, he was on the tactical team. I was not uh, part of our negotiators or part of our tactical team. And if I was working and he got called in for a raid, everything was fine. I, Cause I knew if they called for help, I would be one of the first to hear it. But when I was at home and he would say, hey, we're going in. And then, you know, I knew the addresses. I knew who the players might be. I knew what they were getting into. And that was a very trying time because I felt helpless at that point. Um, because at that point, if they're screaming for help and then they don't get it or something's wrong, I'm very much delayed before I know anything. And and so that was that was always hard. Um, you know, you expect something, well, they should be done in 45 minutes. What, what, how come I don't have my, my text yet? Well, I know it's uh, professional. You know, you, you've got to stay within your bounds. But how hard is it sit there and a, a loved one? Because, like, if my wife or child are in danger, I'm busting out. I'm going to go help them no matter where they are. But professionally, 
you're probably not able to do that. You can't cross those boundaries, right? Yeah, I think, and uh, you know, we, we've been very fortunate, I think, like Mandy said, because we had a very solid working foundation for, for such a long time um, because we have seen other people um, that were in a relationship and also working at the same agency, you know, do exactly what you said and kind of cross that line where, you know, if, you know, we're on a call and she gets, you know, assaulted by someone or something like that, you know, she's not just, you know, a fellow officer. She, she's my wife, that type. So we have seen people cross that line and, and run code to these calls or try to get someplace. And, and that can be difficult. And I imagine that's frowned upon. Uh, yeah, very it's, much. it's very much frowned upon. <laughs> but, but let's also yeah. be clear. But let's be, you, but be realistic about it. Yeah. At, at the same time, that's a basic human instinct when you have a loved one that's, you know, in danger. Protecting your loved ones Absolutely. is something that is ingrained in, in, into all normal human beings. And I'll take the, the somebody yelling, whoever's going to yell at me, I'll take that. If, if I, I, that's just me though. I mean, that's my human nature. I want to take care of my family members. Uh, but <laughs> let, let's go down a little rabbit hole for a second, because as stressful as it can be working together when you're married, how difficult would it be if you got divorced? I, yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, obviously we had we, that happen at my agency. We've seen that. We've oh. seen that. And yeah, because then, yeah, that would be difficult. Yeah, then, be, you're, because then you're like <laughs> opposite. You got to be opposite shifts <laughs> and opposite sides of the city. Or you, you hope you can. You but hope, but yeah. Brett, you, you remember you just saying that you and your wife, you avoided each other. Uh, but sometimes you get sent to the same calls yeah. or you end up in the yeah. same training class. And and, and so that there's an additive incentive to, to stay together because that, that's even more stressful Absolutely. than all this other stuff that's going on. But there was a recent incident that took place that Mandy, you were involved in. Mm -hmm. and, and that happened to be the, the active killer incident that took place at Michigan State University. Yes. How did you come to be involved in that, that particular call? Well, uh, I, I wasn't working. I was at home that night and uh, our tactical team was being activated to go assist. And so we got the text message that we needed to come in for that. Again, I'm a negotiator we get the full team call out. So um, I quickly sent a text to my uh, team commander and I was like, assuming we're not needing negotiators currently, but do you want us to come in? We need people. And he was like, yes, come in, bring your people. Kind of looked at Paul and I said, uh, I got to go. <laughs> and that was kind of it. Well, and so let's go to Paul for a second. Uh, Paul, you're an older dude like me and you're retired at this point. Yes. So, so guess, guess whose pager's not going off, yes. right? Yes. How difficult was that? Because when we talk about training for high risk events, that, that one's always at the top of the list, some type of active killer event. How difficult is it? It doesn't matter how well trained and how competent she is. How difficult is that for you to let her walk out the door and you got to stay home? I'll be a hundred percent honest with you. Um, it, it's, it is difficult, but at the same time, I, because I know everyone she's going in there with, all right. I, I know everybody involved. I know she's going in there with the best people, with the best equipment, with the best training that do that type of work day and, and not on that scale. Okay. Because again, uh, a mass casualty incident isn't something you come across every day, but I, I knew the team that she was going in there with. And so I, I knew that she, you know, you know, with her, with her training, her experience, her leadership and the stuff that she was in the people she was going there with, I felt very, very safe. Okay. Now there's still, is there still that uncertainty? Cause you have an active killer that's, you know, running amok, you know, on a university of, you know, 40 to 50,000 students in, in a city. Yeah. You know, 
that that part's difficult. So, so Mandy, some of the stuff that you just described, some of the best qualified, some of the best trained people, uh, even though he's been gone for a couple of years, he had a hand in, in, in directing the agency's training so that they would be the best trained. And, and that, that the fact that they were, that had to be comforting for you as well while you were responding. Absolutely. And, you know, our, our area does really well at uh, multi-agency training. Uh, active violence is one that we train in with different departments. Um, so, yes, he was part of kind of setting that up a while ago that, you know, you see that a long time ago, long time ago. You're on scene and this event is still unfolding and not real sure where the guy's at. And we've got all this stuff going on. Uh, It has to be tempting for you to comfort him to, to just to say, Hey, things are good. Things are good. But, but then, you know, you don't want to lose focus. You, You don't want to, uh, be distracted, but you also don't want him distracting you because sooner or later he's going to have to just making sure you're okay. So how do you handle that as a spouse of someone who's on the scene, but you know, you've got someone who knows what the scene's like. So I was very fortunate. Uh, we had really good, uh, incident command kind of going on when I got on scene. And so we were setting up a command post and all that kind of stuff. And I, I got I'm going to say stuck in there. That's not where I wanted to be. That's where I was. Um, and so I knew when I, you know, could take a, a deep breath real quick. I knew because back to you've said it a few times, he is older than me. And I had to think about his heart in the situation. I, I was I was thinking older, uh, older and you're gooder. So <laughs> and, and so I did send him a text. I go, I'm in the command post because I knew that he would know uh chances are I'm out of harm's way. And I knew that then he could kind of take that deep breath himself. And, uh, you know, any of my family members or our fa- friends that were texting him, he could kind of. And that was the key with it. And for the, you're not familiar with it there, you know, there, there's an app out there that people were, they were listening in real time. And I think there was at one point in time, there was over a couple hundred thousand people listening to this happen in real time oh, through, really? through, through a scanner app. Um, so not only, you know, I've got friends that are texting me, I got family, I got coworkers, retired folks, you know, all of her family because they know that she's out of pocket. So they reach out to me. So in, until about probably about one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning when everything kind of subsided a little bit, you know, I'm kind of running, I'm the switchboard operator, you know, you know, handling, you know, texts and phone calls from, you know, family members and coworkers and retirees and, and different people. So, but, but again, that, that's where I think one of the advantages to being married and understanding the terminology comes in handy because you can sense I'm in the command post. And, and that speaks up a paragraph's worth of information right. to somebody who's worked the job. And we know too, like sometimes like no news is good news. Like, oh, absolutely. You know, if I know that if that's, that's what's going on and that's where she's at, you know, I, I don't have to hear from her for the rest of the night. And I know that, that things are. But it, but it has to be comforting to you in, in a weird way, knowing that with that type of event going on, she was doing what she wanted to do. I mean, if that event's going on, how mad would you have been, Mandy, if you didn't get called? It's not that we, I mean, that's what you train for, isn't it? Yes, yes. So so I want to be there and I want to be part of it. Brent and I, we we actually talked about having you guys on and you were kind of talking, man, married on the job. That, That has to be both comforting and reassuring sometimes and absolutely terrifying on others because it's such a stressful job to begin with and you add that extra layer to it it's you know it's just got to be so uh difficult you know it's not only that uh, one your loved one but two you probably wanted to be on scene as well 
And, that, right? and that's funny thing, Brad, that you mentioned that. So that was a couple of the text threads that I had going over with some former coworkers and stuff. And, and, and it was like, I would give anything to be able to go back and, and suit back up just for one night. Like to, I'll do it for free. I, do it for free. I'll pay you whatever case. Cause like I said, this is not just what you train for, but you want to go out there and, and, and keep the community safe and stuff like that. And, you know, thank God stuff like that doesn't happen every day, but uh, there was multiple, you know, messages and conversations going on with me and some other folks that, you know, had either retired and stuff like that said, Hey, for one night, let's, let's go. Or that's, that's right. And I'll tell you how comforting it was or the advantage of, you know, being on the job or knowing the job is that he did know our training and background of several of the agencies that were coming or were there. And then he was sound asleep when I came home in the morning. So, I mean, <laughs> it, it was, it was that stressful on him that he, 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 was. he was able to, you know, get some shut eye before I got well, home. That was way past his bedtime. <laughs> it was, it was, it was, yeah. Hey, you know, can you, Mandy, can you imagine if him and the old crew had gotten together? It'd been like, what was that movie Space Cowboys where all the old astronauts get back together and they're taking a little walk down there wearing, wearing their tactical gear. You know, the buttons aren't exactly coming together, but man, we're ready to I go. Have to come to Paul's defense here. It's, I mean, you, the, the description you guys are giving on with this audio is you're getting a they're raw deal. They're not doing just are they? You're getting a raw <laughs> deal here, pal. That's all right. All right. Yeah. Well, wait, and, and, you know, I'm able to do that because I, I really respect Paul uh, immensely. And obviously, I respect Mandy, but I respect Paul immensely. And he and I are very similar in many, many ways. Uh, but I also did it because I want to show how powerful a tool in dealing with stress is a good sense of humor. It's, it's critical. It's a, it's a, yes, it's a game changer. <laughs> I mean, it's it's amazing, right? I mean, being able to, to laugh at yourself and and well, laugh at laugh at others too. You know, if you're if you're the host of a podcast, but but th- that that sense of humor it really helps to alleviate some of that the high tension. Absolutely. And I'll take all the, the old guy <laughs> jokes, Brett, every single day, because every morning when she goes to work, I'm sitting in the you know chair with my coffee and, you know, I'm getting ready for my nap. So it's, I'll take all the old jokes all day long. Well, you know what, Paul, I, I was talking about a sense of humor uh, just to lead into this story. Okay. Uh, because uh, I ran into you guys. Uh, while we were coming to Ilita. Yes, you did. Uh, and, and okay. And so Talk for, about for, putting Paul in a bad light. There we go. Throw <laughs> him under the bus. <laughs> okay. So, so you know, I get off the tram in Detroit Metro Airport and I'm, I'm, I'm walking over to the entrance to the Sky Club. And I look over and who do I see, Mandy? You see me. And, and, and so I'm like, Mandy, how are you? Right. We greet each other. And, and what was the next question I asked you? Where's Paul? Uh, and, okay. And what was your answer? I, I go, he's in the Sky Club. And what was Paul doing in said Sky Club? Well, he was supposed to be, you know, checking it out to see if I should use one of my passes to get in. Okay. Because, because you're a prudent person, are you not? Yes. Okay. And we don't, because then you guys do travel. You travel a lot and you take some nice trips together. Yes, do. And, and you wanted to be sure that it was worthwhile using the pass, right? Correct. Yes. And, and so I said, you know what? I'll go in and I'll find him. And, and so I go in to, to the Sky Club, Brent, and I walk the entire length, <laughs> the entire length of the Sky Club, and I can't find him. So, Paul, did I send you a text message? Yes, you did. And, and what was the text message? Uh, 
I don't recall. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Paul, are you in the potty? Because that's the only place I could think of that he wouldn't be. Because Mandy, she's standing guard at the door outside. I mean, it was it was almost pathetic. I mean, they're standing outside there, right? And so Paul, he he's all of a sudden this guy stands up over on the edge and he goes, "Hey, Mike." And I go over there and I'm like, hey, why bring Mandy in here for crying out loud, right? So so he goes and gets you, Mandy, yes, and he, he brings does. you in, right? Yep. And what was the first thing you noticed when you walked up to where Paul and I were sitting? I noticed that there was an empty plate of food next to him. <laughs> and so I was like, you got There will be time for food? rebuttal. <laughs> you got food? Like, you're just supposed to come and, and, and check it out and see if it was, it, no, no, he sat down and had a plate of food. Yeah, oh, well, was the plate full? No, it was completely empty. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> With remnants of food yes. left there. So he was he was doing a thorough job of checking <laughs> everything out, Wanted right? to make sure the food was up to my standard. <laughs> all right, Paul. Is it time for rebuttal, Michael? Yes, it is. It right, is. Thank you. So, yes, this is all accurate <laughs> to some extent. <laughs> but the the so the Sky Club we were at is not the main one. It's a smaller one. So, yeah, he said, let, let me go in and, and see what the layout is and see about whether or not and you want to use that. why you hat. didn't see him because he was all the way in the back of the buffet. <laughs> so, I was. so I, I didn't. I wanted to make sure the food was worth it and all that kind of stuff. And I, to be honest with you, I thought that she had went down to the gate, which is right below. And I thought she was sitting there on her phone or computer or whatnot. So but because once, I, did once not know you, that, once I did not know she was still standing once outside. Once you entered the, the magic blue doors <laughs> that swished open, you didn't even bother looking back, did you? Well, I felt now that you picture it, I, I picture like someone's lost little child, like at the amusement park, just standing in the middle of that's nowhere. What, and that's probably what it is. And that, I felt horrible. It was, it was closer to when, you know, those mean people take uh, their pet and go out on a country road oh, and just leave it and, on and the side just, of the just road. abandon yeah. right. That's, that's more of what so, we're talking about here. So, yeah. So I did, I didn't want to check it out and sample the food to make sure it was okay. And, and then I was going to, you know, coordinate with her. Hey, come up or, <laughs> or no, it's not with, or no, it's not worth it. I can't believe you made the flight here. I, <laughs> surprise you let you get up. We're talking just several minutes. This wasn't like an hour. I, I, enough time for him to have a plate of food. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> oh, Pete. I mean, we do eat fast. I mean, no, no, I mean that's part of that's your part, training. Of your exactly. Let's get back but. to the job, Mike. Yeah, we eat fast. <laughs> we don't sleep enough. Well, what else? I got to ask a question. So I, I'm a Michigander. I grew up in and I've mentioned that before. And so I'm familiar with a lot of places in, in, in Michigan. Uh, uh, y'all are in uh, Lansing. So you've not only have uh, Michigan State, College Town, it's also the capital. So I have to imagine there's lots of events that go on in that particular part of the state. Are there anything other than the Michigan State incident where some big incidents happened either politically or on college campuses that you guys had to, had to deal with? Yeah, I think, you know, with Lansing's, the, you know, the capital city there. So basically, uh, there, there's a protest every single day at the capital, some way, shape or form. But yeah, when we have huge events there, um, uh, different rallies, I know we've had like the white supremacy, Nazi type rallies where, you know, they're blocking off streets and, you know, there's tear gas. Uh, there was a huge right to work, uh, right to work type thing um, back in uh, May of 20, right after the George Floyd incident, obviously when the huge defund the police movement was popular everywhere. We had a bunch of protests and stuff there. Again, Capital City where, you, again, a lot, a lot of carnage to businesses and cars flipped over and burned and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it, 
it's a busy, it's a, it, the population of the city itself is only nowadays probably 120, 140,000. But what they say is usually during the work week that almost doubles because you have the state capital there. You have a couple of large medical facilities and it's the, one of the hubs for GM for all the whole country is, is in Lansing. Um, so you almost double that population during the day. So there's a lot of people in and out during the day. And then like I said, you're next to a university that has, you know, 40 to 50,000 students at it. Right. Um, th- th- there's a lot going on. Well, so, so then Mandy, being part of the state capital, uh, obviously a lot of these protests are political in nature. And, and one of the things that is expected of law enforcement is to stay apolitical. But, but th- that has to be hard for even a professional because you're also human and you have uh, stances. So how do you go about maintaining that type of, hey, you know what? I'm here to enforce the law. I'm here to make sure that everybody gets their right to speak in accordance with the Constitution. How do you handle that yourself? That's, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I think I thought so. I know, yes. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would say that, you know, part of our training is to just to ensure people's safety. And when you're talking about, um, you know, First Amendment type stuff, and you realize that people have different views and different perspectives on things. And even though I don't agree with it, um, you know, it, it's, if they're at the Capitol, that's one thing, because usually they've got permits and they've got all these different things. Um, the Michigan State Police handle stuff on the Capitol lawn. Um, so we're working in, in conjunction with them. But, you know, those things are, you know, you, you are there just to make sure no one is physically harmed or anything like that. Um, when you get into something where, you know, it's a, I don't know, let's just say a neighbor uh, that maybe is yelling racial slurs or something like that, that is something where, you know, that's that's not okay. You got to shut that down. Try to redirect how, how the call is being handled. I think some of it's experience, like, like I said, because we deal with it so much there, it's, it's something that you kind of get used to putting it into that mentality of, okay, this is just, you know, this is a job, this is my role, that type of thing. And yeah, you can say what you want. You can, you know, hold your signs, do whatever you can, you know, and try to intimidate us or yell at us. That we, we know that's not directed at me personally as Paul, it's directed at the badge or the uniform or what we represent or the government or whatever the case may be. Um, but I think you can look at as fortunate or not fortunate. We, ex- we have experienced that a ton over our career. If you work in a capital city anywhere, you know, or you work, I would say even around a university where you see protests and demonstrations, that's something that you get acclimated to pretty quick. Well, it all, it, it all boils down to what Pat Swayze said in Roadhouse. Be nice. Be nice. <laughs> you know? Until time is not to be nice. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'll tell you yeah. when it's time not to be right, nice. Right. But, but it, it, it's, I, I think Lansing is unique at least for the state of Michigan, because you have the Lansing, the city of Lansing that you have jurisdiction over. And university or MSU is not in your jurisdiction and they have their own police department, don't they? Correct. And they're also in East Lansing, which also has their own police department, but you still have to handle things that are associated with that those agencies, you know, we talked about MSP, Michigan State Police, that they they handle stuff on the Capitol grounds, but th- these protests just don't stay on the Capitol grounds. So I would imagine that you guys have to work with other agencies probably more frequently than most police departments do, simply because of your location and the type of location that you police. Well, that and, and we are the biggest department in our in our area so when when additional or other agencies need those additional resources they do call us because we can provide the most 
Um, so we do get a lot of hands-on experience. And it, kind of alluded to, it's a different type of policing in a capital city. Um, being on the recruiting team here for the last three years, uh, not everybody wants to work in a, in a capital city. Um, and we've heard that before, actually, when our, our chief was, our current chief was, uh, you know, kind of running for the job there. He was like, it's, it's different being a police chief for a capital city. Um, than just maybe a really big department, uh, a chief of a, a big department. So, like I said, because we do get those. Government, governor, any governor makes someone happy or mad, they come to our, our jurisdiction. So. But the key to it, and Manny mentioned it earlier, and you, and you hit on it, is is we do multi-agency, inter-agency training every single year in civil disorder stuff and active violence response. So any anybody that's a law enforcement agency, like in our county, we all come together and we and we purposely mix people together because you never know if you, you're on a skirmish line outside the Capitol, who you're standing next to, and you don't care what their patch says or anything else. And, and this is a, a one of the best attributes to, you know, to confirm that is I talked to, um, one of, one of my trainers, um, after the, the MSU event and I was talking to her and checking on her cause I knew she was one of the first officers that was there on scene and proud that she was one of the first ones there because I know that she's a professional and knows how to handle business. And I just remember she told me, she goes, yeah, I went into clear one of the, one of the uh, rooms there at, at Berkey Hall where some of the victims were at. And I looked across and there was a patch on the uniform and it was someone from a different agency, actually a different County, not even anywhere around here. Um, because I mean, I think we had over 300 law enforcement folks responded to that. And I don't want to say specifically because right. I was not there. Yes. But the, the response was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. It, it was, it was amazing. Um, needed. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and, but she goes, we went in and cleared that room. Like we had been working and training together for years hmm. and it's just one of those things where like that type of training and that's why we do it every single year for those type of mass events where it's mass casualty or demonstration type of thing it's so important because you know the, the first time that you want to meet the guy from the neighboring you know jurisdiction isn't when you're getting bottles right. and rocks thrown at you or going to clear a school or something like that so uh, we've had folks on from Michigan before and I've never thought to ask this question I think you guys would be really great to answer it um, Michigan decriminalize marijuana a while back. I, I go back to visit my parents and I'm driving through all these towns and I'm like, where did this pop up at? Why? There, you, you can get we, How weird was it for you guys in law enforcement? One day weed is illegal and the next day it's everybody's buying it. it well, it went through a gradual change. It kind of went to medicinal and then eventually it became legal. Um, and yeah, it, it was something where I remember why we were kind of transitioning. That's when I was undercover and um, honestly, we didn't really care about weed at that point because we were, we were like, hey, this is this is on its way to being legal. Um, yeah, your two and a half ounces we will kind of look for, but uh, there's worse drugs out there. Um, and, and that's where, uh, yeah, it, it, that, that's one of the big crimes that have changed over, over our careers. And because I'm a little bit older, I think as Michael has referenced, when I was working undercover, that was a huge thing. And, and I go back and you look at it now because like Mandy said, it went stages. It was medicinal first. But, and I don't want to say that medicine was a joke because anybody can get a card, right? They had a, but it know, was. It was. You know, <laughs> when you have a doctor that comes from Seattle and sets up uh, a room at the Holiday Inn Express and sees 300 patients in a weekend, it, that's a joke. It's just for right? the mic clock. Right, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but, I, so, I remember having one, uh, I, I was transporting a guy and he was, he had a medical marijuana 
Monte Card because of chronic pain. And I was like, oh, well, what's your chronic pain? He goes, well, I'm an MMA fighter. And, and he started, I'm like, well. <laughs> you brought on yeah, the pain. Yeah, I, I was like, of course you should be in pain. Like, <laughs> yeah. well, well, Paul, as you and I age, the chronic pain thing takes on a little this bit more true. meaning, doesn't this it? This is true. But you th- I think back to like some of the, the deals that we did, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, before, before the stuff became medicinal and everything, where you know, it, it was dangerous, you know, when, you know, when I had, I had, you know, folks I work with that, you know, when we were out buying a pound or two pounds of weed that got robbed and, you know, and, you know, or we were taken down or we were, you know, doing search warrants of, you know, taking guns off people, all that stuff. And it was over. And now you fast forward 20 years and all that's legal. And it's not to minimize, you know, the work or the efforts those people did back then, but just to see how far it's kind of come, brother, kind of like you said, is uh, it, it's, it's truly mind boggling. And you are right. Like it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how it moves forward when you look at other states that have had it, you know, decriminalized because, you know, you, you, you can go down any street and, you know, there's a dispensary. And, um, it'll be interesting to see if, if they can all stay afloat because I think that sometimes, you know, and, and that's with some of the research that we're seeing now specifically in Michigan is some of these legal dispensaries are, are, aren't making the money because, you know, you know, anybody can go in the street and, and buy it so they can charge a little bit more money because Joe Schmo, who, you know, wouldn't normally go buy marijuana from some guy off the street corner, will go into a legal place to do it, but he's going to charge a little bit more. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see in the next few years to, to see really what the ramifications are. It seemed are. like the market was so saturated, like every other and store that's the was other problem. You know? yes. That's the other problem. Uh, it, 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 I, I think the thing that bothers me the most about it, because I... I I don't hang around people that, that smoke weed, mm-hmm. but the thing that bothers me is how you drive down the interstate and it seems like every stinking billboard is about some dispenser. Sure. We deliver, you know, how sure. it, it, it I, I just, to me, it just looks cheap. I, I don't know how else to describe yeah. it. No, I, I can see, I just happened to think to me, it's gotta be weird. One day something is, well, and like you said, gradually, but like, you know, here in Missouri, it's just become decriminalized as well. So it's just gotta be weird. One day it's bad. Next day, not bad, and you, you know it's. And the only thing that the only thing that changed was the date, right? The right. only that's right. the only right. thing that changed. Uh, now, Paul, I've given you a hard time, okay? But now we're going to get serious, okay? Uh, you're retired, okay? And you kind of made light of the fact that when Mandy goes to work, you're sitting around in your house coat and taking naps, but you're not really doing that. What? Well, tell me what you're doing in retirement. Um, so, uh, you know, a couple of things is that there was, there's not a whole lot of benefits to this profession, you know, sometimes, <laughs> but one of the benefits to this profession is we do specifically at an agency that worked at, that we, if you put in your 25 years, you can retire at a very young age. So knowing that fairly young, fairly young. <laughs> um, but still like if you talk to a lot of other people, in a lot of professions to retire at 47 and not have to work in, and if you don't want to people, that's mind boggling to most people. Right. Um, but knowing that I was going to retire at a fairly early age and that I, I wasn't just going to hang it up. You know, um, I did start a, a training and consulting company there in based out of Michigan where we work in active violence preparation, threat assessments, some hands-on stuff for civilians. It's, it's geared towards the private sector and civilian folks. And basically it was to take some of the, you know, training skills and knowledge that I acquired through 25 years of law enforcement and, and help people in the private sector have some of those same skill sets. Because at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, keeping yourself, keeping your loved ones safe regardless. And, I, and that's always been my thought is that it doesn't matter, you know, where you work or what you do that everybody should have access to that type of training should they want it. Um, so, so I started up that company. So that's something that I do day to day with keen training there based out of, uh, Lansing. Um, and then at, here at Alita this week, uh, I'm, I'm working for uh, command presence training, uh, based out of Brunswick, Georgia there and, and representing command presence here 
right, I lead it this week and we're working on some some new stuff with FTO training and instructor development and stuff like that. So um, that, that type of stuff with command presence uh, has been keeping me pretty busy traveling around the country doing some teaching for command presence. Well, let me ask you, with keen training, uh, when you talk about the civilian sector, uh, has that been keeping you busy? Absolutely. And it's, it, and, and we, you know, we, we don't have a running joke, but we know that anytime that there's, you know, a hot button incident on the news, you know, the, the business line rings the next day, you know, we, we know that it happens. So, and it's not only from the perspective of, you know, the, the individual citizen wanting some training to keep themselves and the loved ones safe, but the, you know, the most of the training that we do nowadays is working with private businesses, places of worship and schools doing active shooter training and doing threat analysis and threat assessments to how to, you know, keep their building safer. And, you know, sometimes we think about how do we keep, you know, a safe workplace. People think about security cameras and things like that, but we try to dig even deeper to say, you know, are you running background checks on your people? What's your policy and procedure? Do you train, you know, do you, do you have reunification points? Like all these things, you know, so we try to do a pretty comprehensive and thorough analysis of a, of of a school or a business or something like that to kind of point out some of their vulnerabilities. But because ideally uh, if Mandy shows up on the scene we hope it's already been handled and nothing bad's happened and that, that's ideally what we hope happens and, and you're helping to provide that uh mandy how much time you got left on the job four and a half years and but you're getting ready to make a change here uh, as far as assignment aren't you yes going back to patrol and what, what what's your assignment right now though <laughs> Uh, it, well, it's called staff services. It wears lots of hats, uh, but my main responsibilities are recruiting and hiring. And, and so I know the answer to this, but I want to hear it from you. How difficult has that position been as far as attracting and, and hiring and keeping qualified applicants? Uh, it's been, uh, I, well, I think it's been difficult. That's just the, the easy answer is that. Uh, however, I've, I was never a recruiter before I got into this assignment. Actually, I picked this assignment thinking that I was going to be doing a lot with um, our local academy and the professional development of our cadets and our, our young young people. Um, and then I realized that I obviously didn't read the job description very well. <laughs> and it was really- error. <laughs> you were really the department's recruiter. Um, and so going out, it was changed because it was during COVID. So a lot of things were done online and that's hard to reach to people because when you come to a career fair or you're standing in front of a class, you have them or you can grab them. You have that personal connection. These career fairs that were online, it was hoping people would sign up to talk to you. And, and it was really, really hard. And, uh, but it was all I knew at the time. So as now we've kind of transitioned out of COVID and we've been able to get that face-on-face contact, um, you know, one of our selling points for our department is that our department has a pension, which we think is great, but we have to change our thinking because lots of times people, back to, people aren't thinking about being in this profession for the long run. So the pension part of it, they're like, I'm never going to be there. What difference does it make? Um, and finding different ways to attract people and, and, and attract the right people. Yes. Um, that, that's, that's a big point because because you know you want you want people to be in this profession for the right reasons, and and you want them to stay. So it, it has been difficult. Um, you find different ways. Uh, you know, social media has been a, has played a big role for our department and how we've found people. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just thinking outside the box and getting a lot of those younger members uh, of our department involved in, in that because who best speaks to their generation than them? And and, and as we're wrapping things up. Uh, the best recruiters in a department are the individual members in the department because they know who's going to fit best. Mm-hmm. And But they're not going to be good re- uh, recruiters for us 
if we don't have mentoring programs right. and we don't have training programs like you guys have been so instrumental in, in creating. And, and so, Brent, uh, I have to say that married and on the job, they're wearing it well. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like you have a great <laughs> relationship because I'm a married man myself, 20 years. You guys have a great relationship both at home and when, you know, when you're at work. And so it's really, uh, it's great to hear your stories and hear how you manage that and, and, and navigate your, your career and your home life. Well, well Brent, if, if we could, I would like to, even though you're transferring out, uh, I'd like to put in the show notes uh, Lansing PD's uh, their recruitment page because we, we do need qualified people in there. And also, uh, if people want to find out about your training, where, where's the best place for yep. them to go? Um, go to www.keentraining.com. Um, that's where we do all the private sector stuff. And then, you know, law enforcement training. If you're looking for some instructor development or FTO stuff, uh, you can reach us at Command Presence. Very good. Yeah, we'll put all that stuff. You can find out more at uh, Paul and Mandy on our website, Between the Lines with virtualacademy.com. Thank you guys so much for joining us here at ILEDA. It's been uh, a lot of fun getting to know you guys and sharing your stories with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. you.